Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening friend, Nathan Wilson, and I'm so glad you've decided to join us. It's a wonderful day in December. We're earing, earing, nearing the end of the month. Of course, that means a lot of things. Christmas is just around the corner, and we'll be celebrating oh, with family and loved ones gathered around the table or the Christmas tree. Or maybe if it's warm enough, <laughs> out on the patio, in the garden, in the landscape. I hope so. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we have had some chilly weather, some cold freezing weathers, as a matter of fact. But we've also had some temperatures that have been really nice. And just this week, we did have some nice, fairly warm days. Uh, but it does look like we'll be up and down for the next week or so. You know, 60s aren't so bad. But then the nights can be quite chilly. So I hope that things are growing well and going well in your landscape and in your garden. This year we've, you know, as we near the end of a year, it's like we can reflect on all the things we've talked about and so many different topics and ideas, things for inspiration, etc., etc. And maybe you haven't been able to join us for every episode this year. Maybe you slept in a week or two. It's nice to sleep in on the weekends. Or maybe you went traveling and uh, were preoccupied or just forgot to turn on the radio. Well, if that's the case, you can find every episode of New Southern Garden from this year and the previous years on the website at NewSouthernGarden.com. It's easy to find. We're on Facebook and Instagram. You can become our friends and our pals and our followers and likers or whatever they're called uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And it's a great way to send us questions because as we get to the end of this uh, month, which of course will be the end of the year, we're going to answer your questions. We try to have the uh, Q&A week, your questions, our answers at the end of the month. And so be sure to submit those, whether it's on NewSouthernGarden.com or through Facebook and Instagram. Now, on today's program, I sort of wanted to uh, talk about gardening in the news as a matter of fact, it's invasive species in the news because I came across, uh, my aunt actually sent me an article from USA Today that is talking about a particular plant that you may have in your landscape, maybe not by choice. I have this plant in my landscape and it wasn't by my choice. We purchased a home, of course, last year and this site is riddled with this particular tree. Now, when we talk about invasives, I found a video clip as well to sort of explain because invasive species are not just in the plant world. You know, we talk about kudzu, we talk about privet uh, in the plant world, and one we're going to talk about today, I'll leave you in suspense. Um, but invasive species can be animals, they can be insects. As a matter of fact, 
just a few weeks ago, and I think we talked about this particular spider uh, maybe a couple of years ago, but a few weeks ago you would have seen, they've sort of disappeared now, you would have seen the East Asian Joro spider if you live in my area, uh, particularly Hall County into Jackson County. Uh, I'm not sure if it's really up into White County yet, but it may be because it spreads quickly. And this East Asian Joro spider looks a lot like our banana or riding spider. Uh, they are a uh, orb web type spider, so their webs aren't just flat. They're multidimensional. And this particular spider, uh, I think we did talk about this a couple of years ago, but we don't see, uh, the University of Georgia was studying it, trying to count its uh, how many there were, and they found out they couldn't count because it multiplies so rapidly, so they sort of shut down that program, but they did determine that it doesn't seem like it's going to be too detrimental uh, to our environment and our local area. However, time will tell, right? Time will tell if this particular invasive spider is going to be a problem. And so if you haven't seen it in your area, you're lucky. I know that in South Georgia, it's not that far. I don't even know if it's down towards Atlanta yet because they were able, the university was able to pinpoint uh, that this species came in on a box truck from China uh, somewhere around the Pendergrass, Georgia area, uh, which of course is more, uh, I guess, western Jackson County. And it's sort of uh, Pendergrass very close to where we live. And so that spider started there, crawled out of a shipping container, and then began to multiply in our trees and on power lines. If you drive through Hall County in the, oh, let's see, month of November and September, October, November, yeah, not quite November, September, October, you will see these golden webs everywhere. They're everywhere, and they are very annoying for somebody who's cutting grass because you can go underneath a tree with your lawnmower and get smacked in the face with this very thick, almost thread, thread-like um, web, very sticky, and it sticks to you. It's tough. So, to sort of get back to where we were, we're going to talk about uh, an invasive plant that I was suspecting was invasive. Uh, even though the state of Georgia has not recognized it as invasive, uh, the state of South Carolina, our friends to the north, has recognized this particular tree as becoming invasive, and they are putting things to action. Uh, they are putting legal restraints on the production and the sale of this tree. And so we'll get to that species after this. I, I did find a little uh, video clip, which I know you can't see, but uh, we will listen to the audio because it does help to explain a bit about what invasive species are. And I think it was well done. It talks about a number of uh, animals and other creatures, little bugs like the East Asian Joro spider that have become invasive uh, around our uh, U.S., the our country here. They've come from other parts of the world, and of course, they don't necessarily belong here, but for one reason or another, they are here. So let's pull up that video clip uh, and listen to this audio here uh, from uh, USA Today explaining to us a little bit about what uh, invasive species are. And we'll sort of explain that before we get into the discussion on this particular These tree. bugs may look pretty, but don't be fooled. If you live on the East Coast or Midwest, they've been popping up everywhere, wreaking havoc on fruit crops and trees. These guys are called spotted lanternflies, and they're not the only ones you should worry about. Invasive species are plants, animals, or other living organisms that are not native to a particular area and don't belong there. 
Their presence can lead to biodiversity loss and the extinction of native plants and animals, which could ultimately affect our food, medicines, and clean water. To be considered invasive, a species must adapt to a new area easily, reproduce quickly, and destroy habitats. They tend to outcompete native species for food and thrive because there are no predators to hunt them. In the last 200 years, the introduction of invasive species has continually increased globally, with more than a third of introductions happening between 1970 and 2014. Many invasive species are introduced to a new region accidentally, like through the water tanks of cargo ships, or by getting into firewood, shipping pallets, or crates that move around the world. That's how the spotted lanternfly, native to China, Vietnam, and India, is believed to have arrived to Pennsylvania around 2014. Its eggs are believed to have come on shipments of stone. Zebra mussels, native to Eastern Europe and Central Asia, also arrived to the U.S. Great Lakes by hitching onto large ships. There are now so many in the Great Lakes that they have threatened native species, destroyed boat engines, and damaged pipes at water plants. Scientists estimate that five to 10,000 species are traveling around the world at any given time attached to big ships. Some invasive species are brought to a new area on purpose without anticipating the consequences. Some Florida pet owners released Burmese pythons native to the jungles of Southeast Asia into the Florida Everglades. There, they have few natural predators and feast on many local species. That's similarly to how Nutria, a large rodent native to South America, came to wreak havoc on the Gulf Coast and Chesapeake Bay. Ranchers brought them over in the late 1800s to breed them for fur. When the market collapsed, ranchers released them into the wild. Now they're a major pest, eating tall grasses and rushes, plants that are vital to the region's wetlands and ecosystem. Invasive species are one of the leading threats to native wildlife. Almost half of threatened or endangered species are at risk due to invasive species. And for 18% of U.S. endangered or threatened species, invasives are the main cause of their decline. And it's probably only going to get worse. As the world contends with climate change, our ecosystems will likely alter. Some invasive species may thrive while native organisms, stressed by climate change, decline. To do your part in preventing the growth of invasive species, hikers should clean their boots before hiking in a new area. Pet owners should never release pets into the wild, and travelers should never bring home any animals or plants from afar. And if you're a boat owner, make sure to clean your vessel before entering a new body of water. And so you see there, the good explanation of what an invasive species is. An invasive species would be something that is not from the region we're talking about. So whether it's a tree that is from China and brought here could become an invasive species. The other thing, it has to adapt well to its climate. But the third thing is that it has to be able to reproduce. It would be able to reproduce and reproduce quickly. That is the case with some of these plants that we see in our woodlands like kudzu and also privet. Okay, so for example, these plants, uh, they're not from here. So where there may be some kind of natural predator that either consumes it or restricts its growth, here there is nothing that is restricting its growth. The kudzu can take over, climb up into trees, and then of course when it reaches the top, it's just covering uh, the tops of those trees, shading out the 
oaks and the maples and the pines, whatever it is climbing, and it will kill those trees because it's taking up the space and the light that those trees normally would have. And then, of course, uh, for instance, with kudzu and privet, they reproduce very quickly. They put out tons and tons of seed that can germinate in our soils with no problem, no concern. Again, there's nothing consuming the nuts to uh, or seeds, nothing consuming the seeds or berries that is going to destroy new babies, new plant babies from growing, and they just take over. And so with that being said, there is a tree that I had had some suspicions uh, would be fairly invasive in our area because I see them in places where they were obviously not planted. And I'm talking about the Bradford pear. And when we did a special uh, episode on invasives, I was leading to the fact that these could be invasive, but the state of South Carolina is finally stepping up and saying uh, that these are noxious weeds. So the title of this particular article from USA Today on November 29th, as Bradford pears remain a nuisance in South Carolina, methods of attack range from bounties to bans. So we're going to read a little bit of this. Uh, let's see. Bradford pear trees are to be banned or set to be banned in South Carolina in 2024, giving plant nursery owners a transition period to sell leftovers while they can. The ban is on new sales of the plant starting October 1st, 2024. Now, I don't understand why they're trying to ban a plant, but allowing leftovers to be sold. I mean, I know that this is an economic crop for these plant nurseries. If anybody understands that, it would be me, who, of course, who operates a plant nursery. Uh, it's the same with any business. You've got your product. You want to sell it. But if this plant is a problem, why are we allowing it to be sold anyways? Even though this state hasn't really banned the plant sales of, well, much, if anything, uh, there are some uh, particular plants that are used for recreational concerns out there that are uh, banned, of course, but that's a nation ban. But the state of Georgia hasn't banned this, but South Carolina finally is going to ban the sales of Bradford pears. Now, the interesting thing is there are bounties on the tree. Not only will they be banned, uh, but South Carolina and other botanists are looking at fire, herbicides, and other ways to kill the Bradford pear. Now, Bradford pear is also known as the calorie, calorie pear, and they do sort of hide their ecological destruction with beauty. Uh, it's pretty for us, you know. But uh, the article says here that it's better for everyone if it's dead. <laughs> so, of course, we love to see those flowers in the early spring, late winter. They do come with a very distinct and strange aroma. Uh, but the calorie pear, Bradford pear, also is sort of, well, it sort of hides its ecological destruction capabilities behind its beautiful characteristics. Beautiful fall foliage with purples and reds and, and whatnot colors. Uh, but it gets pretty bad. So we're going to get back after this break and talk about what South Carolina is doing to try to save its forest from the Bradford pear. Hang on tight. Hey. 
Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our contact us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well. All right, gang, so before the break, we were talking about invasive species, particularly the Bradford pear. Now, I don't know, the Bradford pear is becoming, uh, it's not as well-known as an invasive species as kudzu or privet, things that we know we shouldn't really be planting. But because the Bradford pear has beautiful attributes, Beautiful white, creamy spring flowers covering the tree. And then, of course, in the late the uh, late fall, of course, it's got a beautiful fall color. We may not consider something like that to be invasive, but a few years ago, I began to notice. I was doing a lot of traveling for the Department of Agriculture when I was an employee there and would go all over the state. And I would notice on my way up and down even the interstates, and locally on highways and just county roads, that in the spring, if you look out into the forest right on the edge, there are clusters of these small trees that have beautiful white flowers. And I knew immediately those were pear trees. And we're starting to see that these Bradford pears are creating their own thickets, and they're getting uh, quite um, disastrous as far as plant species go. Now, we are looking at an article today from USA Today, which is pretty cool that actually a, a major news outlet is writing about the e- e- uh, ecology and gardening, because this is all related here. Uh, but it does continue, the trees choke out other plants, especially in fallow fields, which are empty pieces of land that are the forests of the future. That is true. So fallow fields, of course, uh, are just pastures or grasslands, and trees will grow up through those fallow fields if no one cultivates it. And we'll start off with uh, uh, our six. We have a succession of forests here in Georgia. The young forests are pine forests, and then oak trees push up through the pines as the pines die out, and hickories, uh, maples, even. And so there's this natural succession that we have noticed in our area uh, for. Uh, forest growth. But if these Bradford pears are allowed to be left in these fallow uh, fields, then they're interrupting our normal natural succession of forests and forest development. And so it can be uh, quite a concern. Now, the uh, article says, even with the pending ban in South Carolina against Bradford pears, it could be centuries until the Bradford pears are eradicated. Uh, the individual who's being uh, quoted here is a landscape designer, 
Mr. Ashmore, he says, Our oaks, maples, hickories, and so forth are not being threatened for survival by Bradford pears, but they are being outcompeted. They're being outcompeted. The Bradford pear, of course, is a quick grower, fast growing tree, which is why it's a great landscape plant, right? But it can outcompete with our oaks, maples, hickories, etc. He continues that all the native species in South Carolina will struggle as long as the Bradford pear is alive. I think this guy has a mission in life to definitely kill this plant. The Bradford pear will sometimes, if left alone, kill itself. And you know that because remember that the breaking of the branches on a Bradford pear are terrible. Bradford pears have these um, V, the V in the branch. So you look at the trunk and where the branch comes off the tree is there's a V there. And we call it the crotch, the branch crotch angle. Now, Bradford pears have a very shallow branch crotch angle. Sometimes those branches are almost vertical with the main trunk. They're almost parallel, if you will. They're just slightly askew. And so what happens is right in that crotch area, you've got where wood should be growing to wood, you've got this included bark. So you've got the bark of the trunk and the bark of the branch growing on top of each other. And bark to bark is not a good connection. It's very weak. You want wood to wood. But Bradford pear does not grow that way. And so these guys, these trees, they just crack and break all the time, especially here in the south, because what happens is we tend to have some heavy ice storms. We tend to have you know, misty or uh, rainy weather and cold temperatures overnight that tend to freeze around the branches, freeze around the stems, that extra weight can make that crotch just give way and the branches fall off. So this tree, even though it's planted in our landscapes and along sidewalks and driveways, is not very safe for cars to be parked, let alone a human walk underneath. You never know when they might break. Now, Bradford Pear introduced uh, into the landscape in the 1960s by the Federal Department of Agriculture. They were considered at that time a sterile hybrid. So in other words, the Department of Agriculture was doing a breeding program with these calorie pears, and they discovered this particular strain they call Bradford. The Bradford pear was considered to be sterile, which of course means that it can't reproduce. That would be wonderful, right, for uh, plants that were unsure if they will become an invasive or not. I think it is kind of funny, though, that the Federal Department of Agriculture developed this, introduced it, and now we're dealing with, with a mess-up, you know, from the government. Who would have known? But anyhow, not, this is not a political show. By the 1980s, researchers realized that the trees broke excessively. We've already talked about that. And, of course, those crotch angles just broke off of the tree. It's not a good idea to park your cars underneath this tree. That is very true. Now, the other thing is that the trees can create sort of a dead zone with Bradford or calorie pears growing in thick masses with a dense canopy growing early in the year, uh, keeping the light out for the rest of the plants. They can create sort of a dead zone where very little can grow. Now, the interesting part is, uh, well, the real question is why are Bradford pears hard to get rid of? You know, if we can cut them down in our landscape, why is it such a problem out in the uh, wilderness where they're starting to pop up? Well, to compensate for those weak branches, the scientists developed similar pear trees that weren't prone to breaking. Okay, so after the 1960s, there was some more work done on pear trees that have stronger wood. 
Well, these new trees soon interbred with the existing Bradford pears, uh, sort of creating a scene, as the article says, right out of Little Shop of Horrors, a plant hybrid gone wild. So, 1960s, you have the Bradford pear coming out with all its beautiful characteristics, but it breaks. So then the 1980s comes along, and a little further into uh, history we go. There's a new, a new pear that has stronger wood, doesn't break as much, and it's being sent out into the landscape. And now you've got a situation where Bradford pear and the new introductions are hybridizing naturally, not with the help of man. And now the hybrid is no longer sterile. The hybrid is able to reproduce babies. So with that being said, that's why today's Bradford pear trees and, of course, related trees are becoming invasive. They're wrecking uh, havoc on nature, and they are putting up a pretty hard fight for removal. Now, the trees do have a relatively uh, short lifespan of only two decades anyways, so they could be well on their way to a tenth generation of reproducing. You see that? So we've talking about history now from the 60s, moving on to 20 years, 20 years, 20 years. So there are several generations. Now I'm going to quote the uh, Mr. Ashmore here. The further along this process goes, the process of hybridizing in the wild, the more these calorie pears resemble the ancient wild Chinese pears uh, from the mountains uh, from which they came. They're just a thorny thicket mess. He continues, it's just an impenetrable thicket. The calorie pears have four-inch-long thorns, and they are as sharp as you can imagine. And I will say that I've noticed this myself. So I've already mentioned that we have these Bradford pears, which I'm going to have to get a chainsaw and make one low pruning cut to the ground on these. But when we arrived here, there were uh, little clusters of pears along the driveway that obviously didn't look planted. But those babies, those trees, the younger ones, the next generation, they are very thorny. They're not quite as robust yet as the other trees are, but they do have some terrible thorns and whatnot all over them. And so we're going to continue talking about this after the break, but just realize that it wasn't necessarily the Bradford pear alone that causes this problem. But the introduction of new pears since the Bradford pears, creating this natural hybrid in the wild, and those babies are just taking over, creating these nasty thorny thickets. When we get back, more about invasive plants, particularly this Bradford pear. Greenness unfolded. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, gang, before we left for the break, we were discussing the thorny, thicket, nasty, dead zone mess that these children of our Bradford pears have created. Remember that when we planted Bradford pears back in the oh, 70s, 80s, 90s, 
maybe even early 2000s, they were still being used in landscapes around here. We planted a, a tree that, well, the Department of Agriculture from uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture said were sterile and they won't reproduce. But then they started bringing in other types of pears into the landscapes and we've got Mommy Bradford pear and Daddy other pear making babies that actually can produce seeds and trees. They're no longer sterile anymore. And so now these trees, of course, the pears that are produced on Bradford pears are very small and sort of just look like a round berry, just a little ball of fruit, maybe the size of a marble at most. They're not necessarily those nice orchard pears like kefir or moon glow, uh, the Bartlett pears. They're not something we would consume, but birds surely wear, surely would. And of course, they're taking these seeds and the seeds are getting caught up in our waterways and they're moving. The pears are on the move. And now we're left with these thickets of these nasty, thorny pears that more resemble the wild pear in China that all of these came from. So this pear is, is not natively here. We don't naturally have this pear, but this pear is finding a foothold in our state, in our areas. Of course, the discussion today is about South Carolina banning the Bradford pear. And it's creating this, turning our ecology sort of up on its head in certain areas. And so with that being said, we did leave off talking about how uh, these pears are creating an impenetrable thicket uh, with four inch long thorns and as sharp as you can imagine. Now the thorns on these offspring pears, we'll call them, are strong and can puncture tractor tires. So it makes it very difficult to mow them down or push them down in a field uh, that is full of these Bradford pears. We'll call them Bradford pears, even though they're not really Bradford pears, they're hybrids of the Bradford with other pears. So we'll call them the offspring pears. Uh, this article continues that it is a serious problem, and that's why Clemson in South Carolina has been offering a bounty. Here's the fun part. A bounty on the tree. Check this out. If you rip out or cut down up to five Bradford pears with the property owner's permission, you get native trees for free. Isn't that wonderful? What a good program. And it's funny that there is a bounty on the heads of these trees uh, because if you cut them, pull them out, you get native trees to plant in their place. I think it's a pretty good program. So the article asked the question, what other options exist to remove these Bradford pear trees? If you got this impenetrable thorny thicket that even a tractor tire can't plow over, what do you do? Well, of course, um, stopping the sale of future trees could help. But remember, there are wild producing, they are wildly already reproducing uh, wild trees all over. So really, just stopping the sale or the production of these trees is not going to help. Uh, there's an individual here who is part of the eradication program, David Coyle. He's assistant professor, professor of forest health and invasive species at Clemson. He says that uh, he's looking at fire. 
You see, he says, fire can reduce the chance of tire punctures because it dulls the thorn tip and it weakens the overall strength. Uh, This is important because prescribed fire is a commonly used land management tactic and it may be useful. And that is true, of course. Fire is used for land management all the time because there are wild fires. There are naturally occurring fires that actually um, help some of our forests, particularly those pine forests, because some seeds and not just tree seeds, not just oaks and maples or, or pines, but there are some wild flower seeds that have sort of adapted with fire and they may require fire in order for that seed to germinate. And to grow. And so controlled fires are used, of course, in woodlands and other forested areas. Uh, It is all controlled and it's overseen by properly trained individuals. This is not something we're going to just do on our property for any reason. But a controlled fire sounds like it might be a help or a benefit uh, for reducing the number of these Bradford pears, calorie pears that are becoming very wild. Again, as the article says, it's going to uh, take the integrity of the tree down. It's going to make it more brittle. Uh, It's going to weaken those thorns so that something like a machine, a tractor, can come through and plow it down without the machine getting into trouble. But Coyle continues, he says, fire alone cannot eliminate the calorie pear. Calorie pears re-sprout vigorously after fire. Uh, so Coyle and others are studying techniques to use fire to, the, uh, to curb the tree for good. So they're using other techniques, several other uh, different herbicides. Herbicides that they're looking into work to kill calorie pear and uh, trying to determine the exact best combination for small and large trees is being studied. Not only do these trees pose detrimental effects on forests, but they also pose a threat to the food chain. And so there are a number of things you see between fire and herbicides and whatnot that are going uh, to really uh, help. And, and it's all about that research. You know, this is what the universities like Clemson and, of course, here in, the, in our state, the University of Georgia, the, part, uh, the College of Agriculture, they're doing research in all kinds of fields. And I think this is a good example of research institutions uh, being used to their best abilities to try to curb the growth of invasive species. Look, folks, kudzu, I don't know if it's a, a, a battle that's worth fighting at this point. I don't know. I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, it, it was introduced long before the Bradford pear, so it's had decades before us to even grow. Privet, kind of the same thing. It was used as hedges, and as a matter of fact, the hedges on the UGA field, the football field, the hedges there are privet. <laughs> it's kind of ironic, uh, but it's being maintained and controlled in that situation. But in the wild, it's taken over. But it sounds as if, in this case, it's possible that uh, we might be able to figure out and learn new things whether it's the use of fire to make the trees a little weaker and then coming in with herbicides, some kind of herbicides for uh, control. But again, trying to find that exact, exact and best combination is going to be critical. And so the universities are working on that. Now, let's get into this thing about the food chain. Uh, I didn't mean to read ahead that far. But so, again, not only do these trees pose detrimental effects on the forest, but they also pose a threat to the food chain. And here's why. Arthropods, insects that are like caterpillars, are critical food for the survival of many species. Calorie pears aren't particularly scrumptious snacks for these caterpillar-like creatures. Uh, Since few, if any caterpillars, feed on calorie pear, 
every calorie pair represents a food desert for birds. So you got these caterpillars that normally munch and consume some of our native plants. Well, the more of these pears we have, the less native food source we have, so the less caterpillars we have. And the less caterpillars we have, then the less birds we have. So it is a chain. It's not necessarily our food chain, but it is the local food chain, the wild food chain that birds rely on. Now, where there are non-native plants like this, there is a noticeable decline in the number of birds. So if you've got a large area that is full of wild non-native plants, you may see reductions not just in the population of native trees, native plants, but you may see a reduction in the population of native fauna, being the insects and birds. And that may be a sad thing coming around. Uh, This article continues, The few birds that do come around exacerbate the damage done by Bradford pears by spreading the seeds in fallow fields preventing those would-be forests from blossoming. So, of the few birds that may hang around these Bradford pears, I'm telling you, those Bradford pears for a bird is, is a tasty delight. But what do they do? They consume the fruit, the seed passes through the gut, and out pops a new tree that the bird planted without even knowing it. And so you see, it seems as if, I mean, the birds don't really understand what's going on, But us humans, we can realize and spot it. And of course, we're the caretakers of the original garden, right? We were placed on this earth to take care and manage a garden. And of course, uh, this is one way that we can do that. Now, of course, the article continues and talks about alternatives. And I like that because when we talk about invasive species, I always give you alternatives on other plants you can use. But I'm glad that this USA Today article took the step to make some alternatives. So let's read a little bit about that. Um, Coyle says there are many native alternatives to garden gardeners to plant uh, instead of Bradford pears. An ornamental spring flower looked, uh, an, orna- spring, an ornamental, excuse me, my tongue is tied this morning. An ornamental spring flower look can be dogwood, redbud, or swamp titi. Titi. I don't really know that plant. I should have looked that up. I read this before I uh, came on the air, but I, I I don't know that plant. We need to look that up. Yes, of course, dogwood and redbud are those early blooming plants. Uh, the article does also mention serviceberry, which would be my number one choice for replacing a Bradford pear. Any of the serviceberries are wonderful plants um, because they have that beautiful spring, early spring white flowers. They don't have that rancid smell <laughs> that the Bradford pear does. I mean, to me, the Bradford pear blossom smells like fish sticks gone bad or something, which I don't know if fish sticks can go good. As a matter of fact, I'm not a big fan of fish sticks, but they smells very fishy to me. So uh, Bradford pear can be replaced with, yes, dogwood and redbud, which you may be familiar with, but serviceberry, wonderful trees. Witch hazel is another blooming plant in the early spring. It's uh, yellow, strap-like foliage, but witch hazel could be another good choice. They're not quite uh, the tree form that a Bradford pear is. It's more of a large shrub, multi-stems, but still very nice tree and native here. And lastly, Carolina silverbell. You don't find those too often. Uh, We do have one grower that we work with at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week. Uh, That grower is down near the Callaway Gardens area. And uh, beautiful tree, the Carolina silverbell. Beautiful tree. 
Now, of course, the fall color is another thing. The fall color is another thing that uh, you would want from a tree. And so black gum has beautiful fall color, some of the best, really, that you've ever seen. Uh, but the serviceberry, jumping back to it, serviceberry has, in my mind, maybe even better fall color than a Bradford pear. And so serviceberry is number one. Serviceberry is always number one. No major disease issues. It sort of does have a disease that comes with the junipers, the uh, eastern red cedars. It kind of goes back and forth, but it's not going to kill the plant. Um, but with that being said, serviceberry number one, maybe black gum. There are some other choices there. Uh, okay, the article is good to mention uh, some alternatives that you should not use, like Chinese pistache, which doesn't do very well here, uh, but amour maple. Amour maple is a beautiful maple, uh, but it can be another invasive. And then, of course, he, this article continues to list shrubs to avoid. There are some shrubs you should avoid, such as burning bush, privet, mandina, some of the worst non-native shrubs, the experts say. So I'm glad that this article, and we've got just maybe a touch more about it when we get back, but I'm glad this article mentions alternatives that are healthy choices for the landscape and then even takes it further and says don't use these other terrible uh, non-native invasive shrubs. When we get back, we're going to have some more fun with invasives. <laughs> hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. <laughs> at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now, let's get growing together. Well, gang, we have spent uh, today talking about invasive species, which is probably a pretty good time to uh, consider these things, because as we go into uh, spring, which I know we've still got months, but we're, you know, getting ideas on what we want to do in the landscape. We're getting some inspiration of things we want to do. I think that it's just as important over winter to consider what we don't want to do. And of course, we don't want to plant things that are known to become an ecological disaster because it really helps no one, whether it's, you know, I mean, maybe they're beautiful trees like the Bradford pear is a beautiful tree. It still smells funny to me, but being beautiful isn't all that we need to consider. We also need to think about how, how our uh, efforts in the garden and in the landscape is going to affect the landscape at large. And also, maybe future generations. I mean, if you are struggling with a kudzu issue, if you are dealing with a privet issue on your property or some other place where you cultivate the land, those issues aren't necessarily your fault, right? They come from previous generations past. 
They come from, you know, experiments in a way and ideas and and trying things, yes. And maybe none of these were very intentional. You know, the effects were not intentional. With kudzu, it was brought in. We talked about this before. It was brought in to uh, feed cattle uh, and didn't catch on. And then it was brought in again to use as a ground cover for erosion. Well, it does help with erosion, but it takes over. It takes over. And so whatever the intention was is probably not what the reality is today. But just knowing that the things we're doing in the landscape are not only going to affect us, but they're going to affect future generations and really the future generations of the environment, whether it's uh, uh, birds who need native caterpillars, who need native plants in order to eat, <laughs> it's going to affect those. And with that being said, it sort of, sort of circles back, you know, sort of circles back to that old saying that the, the true gardener, the, uh, the real gardener understands that he is planting a tree under which he will never sit in its shade. You know, when we plant a tree, it takes time uh, for it to mature and grow. And in most cases, noble trees, not trash trees like uh, Bradford Pear, but noble trees, they'll take decades to grow and they'll live on for hundreds of years in many cases. And so those trees, yes, we planted them, we can enjoy them in their juvenility, but really it comes down to knowing that that tree is planted for someone else, someone who's not even born yet. They'll be able to sit under its shade in 50, 100 years. And so from the ecological standpoint, what we do today we may want to consider and redirect our thoughts to think what we're doing in the landscape today, how is it going to affect future generations? Are we going to leave a better place because of the things we did? It's something to think about. And so your choice of plants, choosing a plant, maybe we think of only the color of the leaves, color of the flowers, shape of the plant, texture of the foliage, are you ever thinking that this plant is going to be here for someone else to deal with? It won't be my problem. It'll be theirs. <laughs> Do we want to make it easier or harder for them? So, uh, sort of in summary with this article, um, it, it wraps up this way. There are many ecological problems, but an easy fix is that darned Bradford pear tree right outside your house. They're encouraging you. Mr. Ashmore, that uh, landscape designer from South Carolina, says one solution may be just getting rid of that darned Bradford pear that is right outside of your house. Uh, lastly here, other tree species will struggle to survive as long as Bradford pears are growing in South Carolina. Now, of course, this article is about what's going on. The ban in 2024, the ban of selling Bradford pears in South Carolina. It's not necessarily something happening here in Georgia, but it should be on your radar that uh, there's a nursery still selling Bradford pear. Yes, some people still ask for them, but I have taken the philosophy at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week in Flowery Branch, Georgia. My philosophy is that even though you can make a million dollars off of it, knowing that I was the guy, you know, when I'm 80 years old, that I was the guy 
who caused some of these problems because I sold those kinds of trees. That just doesn't seem like it's worth a million dollars. I have been, when I was in um, a community college down in Gainesville, uh, one of our projects in a biology class was to go down to the streams, go down to the stream because there's a big stream and some trails behind the campus there. Go down the streams and pull privet, rip privet out of the ground. And let me tell you, folks, it's hard work. It's hard work trying to undo what someone set into motion 80, 100 years ago. It's not, it's not really their fault, you know, not blaming anybody, but it is what you're having to deal with. And so if we install plants in our landscape that escape, they escape and they go into the woods, they go into the forest, they go into the fallow uh, natural fields that we have here, and they start repopulating and taking over. They're not, they don't belong here. Maybe they're from China. Maybe they're from some other part of the world, whatever. If we look back and think that was, that was the plant that I put in my landscape, you know, I just don't know. I just know that it's a lot of hard work to undo because I have been, I have done that plenty of times. And it's sort of a community service project, too. You know, there are plenty of groups who go and do privet pools. They call them that. They call it privet pools. And they go out into the woods and start pulling privet at certain sites and certain locations. It just takes a lot of work. So no need to be doing that if we don't get that ball, that snowball rolling in the first place. So there are always better selections. And what I would encourage you to do, here's some tips. You know, that video clip we listened to uh, talked about how do hikers help prevent the spread of plants and how do boats, people with boats, prevent the spread of uh, in, uh, certain, you know, invasive species. Well, for us gardeners, we can clean our tools, you know. If we go to somebody's house and uh, use a tool, we should clean it before we use it. Or if we come back home with that tool from somebody else's house, we should really clean, sterilize those tools because you never know where there might be a little seed hiding in the crevice of a pruning shear. Or it may be on the bottom of your boots. Definitely clean your boots, sterilize your boots when you go from a, uh, a site off of yours or onto yours because you don't want to take something with you and you don't want to bring something back. So if we sort of be proactive about what is going on and where we're moving things. Then that will help the spread of some of these invasive species. Now, the other thing, of course, just like I'm going to have to do, uh, it's going to be a lot of hard work, but I'm going to have to cut down my Bradford pear trees. They're mine now. They, I didn't plant them. They were planted uh, before I came here. But cutting down the trees, getting rid of them, maybe using some herbicides on areas that are, are too... Uh, too laborious to deal with getting rid of the source of seed those nasty bradford pear trees all right gang well don't plant invasives that's all i've really got to say use some other plants and if you need some help determining that just check us out online at newsoutherngarden.com and for new southern garden i'm nathan wilson hoping you stay well and grow well this weekend take care Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. 
Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's News Southern Garden Show.